A seller wouldn't do it until it was at least 10,000 miles old. But here I am at 7,500 miles. I, I just tuned my Golf R. Okay. Now, when you say tune, there's like a couple of different ways to interpret that when you're talking about the Golf, because they have several levels of tuning. There's software tuning. You got to break it down for me. It's weird, right? So people say, oh, I've gone stage one. I've gone stage two, all this kind of stuff. So I've gone stage one with an equilibrium tune. I was at a car show at the weekend at uh, the local tuning house in Raleigh, Black Forest Industries. I took the R32 down there and, sh- and exhibited that off in their kind of main like exhibitor area. And I took the R down there as well. And nobody was interested in that one because it's too new and too too common. But I got talking to a few guys about tuning options and stuff like that. And someone was selling what's called a Cobb access port. This is a tiny little cell phone sized computer that you plug into the obd2 port of your car i then paid 175 dollars to a company called equilibrium tuning to purchase a a staged tune map so what they do is they go into the ecu and they remap all the valve timings and injections and all that kind of stuff and so it takes the car from being a 280 horsepower car to being a 370 horsepower car what with no hardware mods required no way it's insane that's remarkable i did something similar to my rv and i think i got like a 10 a 10 horsepower improvement 10 (laughs) these four cylinder two liter turbo engines that are in the golf it's the same engine as is in your gti the only difference with the r is there's an uprated turbo so it's a bit of a bigger turbo and the r is all-wheel drive versus your front wheel drive I tell you, if you've if you've never got into tuning and you want to talk to someone about it and you've been thinking about it, I would love to talk to you on Discord. I won't take up too much more of the show about it, but just to say I'm giddy with excitement with the uh, possibilities that this has unlocked for me. Yeah, that's amazing. And so can I flash my GTI with uh, software update in theory and see some sort of improvement too? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh boy, it's getting dangerous. I think it's I think it's just about as much horsepower as you'd want with a two-wheel drive car. But of course, you know, what do I know? But to, to me, it seems like it. it seems like if you get much more, I'd want to go all-wheel drive. That's so awesome. I remember when I flashed my RV's ECU, it it went it went from like a, you know, it was a drive that you could do, you know, you were you were driving a bus to it felt like I was driving a more of a truck. You know, and that was a nice improvement just because the biggest change for me was it meant I could get on the on-ramp. That's just it, yeah. At, yeah, at, at, at speed. And you know, I just had her checked. It's been flashed for probably three years now, and I just had her checked uh, yesterday, and she just passed all her checks. She's uh, excellent, healthy as can be, yeah. Made it back from California in one piece. Yeah, we did. And now uh, it's weird because we basically moved out to get some work done, and I had to rip out the Wi-Fi network, and of course my, you know, my, my Raspberry Pi server died, so all of my services were down, and I had to shut down my Pi hole. And it's just strange. It doesn't quite feel like home anymore because I, I don't have control over everything that I want. And Home is where the Wi-Fi is, right? Yeah, I don't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> I don't have internet. It's so strange. So after tonight's episode, after we're done recording tonight, I'm going to go home, I hope, and get like the Pi hole and get the Wi-Fi back online. Well, I couldn't quite believe it when you messaged me this week and said that your home assistant, Yella, has finally shown up. It's ridiculous. It's here at perfect timing. Ridiculous. It's perfect timing, right? Because the, the Raspberry Pi died on the road trip. I get home from the road trip and the yellow's there on the porch waiting for me. Yep. I saw the shipping notification, so I also ordered a one terabyte NVMe stick 
So I've already opened up the yellow once and I've installed an NVMe drive. I have a quick pile of hardware here, Alex. Before I get to the yellow, <laughs> I, want to men- I want to mention what I was going to use. Uh, this is a really cool piece of hardware that's been ruggedized, industrialized, can get into super hot conditions. And it's an Intel Atom system with QuickSync that's out of a Tesla solar wall that I picked up on the road trip from a listener. It's decent. Like you could even run a full Linux desktop on it. And it only only takes about five watts idle. So this is where I was considering going. The only problem with this box, and I'm probably still going to use it. I love that it's DC too. And it's got two COM ports, which is amazing. Is that an XT60 connector I see on the power cable? Yeah. <laughs> now I know who gave it to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm probably going to use this for something else, but it's such a cool little box. I thought, okay, I've got an option now, right? So this was one of my options. And that's it's, it's an x86 box. Good power draw. Then the yellow arrived. Now, I have to say I'm very impressed. I think the Home Assistant team did a good job with the case. I've taken it apart a couple of times. It goes right back together. I can get access to it really quick. They have the uh, logo for Home Assistant ingrained in the casing. Laser etched up there. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. And all the ports are on the back. The compute modules just popped right in. My MVME popped right in. I think this is going to be how I will do Home Assistant in the RV is on a dedicated machine. I'm going to have a dedicated machine for Home Assistant. And I'm going to have an application server for all my other stuff. So Home Assistant Yellow will run all of the automations in Jupes. And, you know, she's got, this Yellow has got EMMC for storage for the primary OS. And they've got MVME expansion. I don't really know how you use that, but it's in there. So it's going to give me, I think, I expect at least five years of runway with that device. But then, on your encouragement, and I didn't expect this for like a month, I also picked up the Odroid H3 Plus that they announced shortly after our last episode. It arrived today just a little bit before the show. It's still in the packaging. Oh, you went for the Plus, huh? Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Who am I talking to? Sorry, I forgot <laughs> myself for a hot second. <laughs> now, I'm showing Alex on the camera, but I'll describe it to you. But te- check this out, Alex. So here it is. It's got, it's got a, two Ethernets. It's got uh, four USB... A, it's got USB-C, DC barrel power connector. It has audio out ports, including optical audio out, and it has HDMI and display port. Plus, it has an Intel chip on here. It's got a pretty meaty heatsink on it. And on the bottom, it's got two slots for RAM and a slot for an MVME disk. And the killer feature for me, two SATA ports on the board. That's massive. That's a game changer for me because I've been using USB storage forever welcome to the welcome to the the world of real hardware dude you know i'm so excited i'm so excited i'm so pleased oh i think it's gonna be perfect so this is what will replace my raspberry pi 4 and i'm gonna run all my applications and more right because i've got more horsepower here and it's got quick sync as well i gotta get some ram ordered for it i didn't expect it to arrive this soon so i haven't i haven't ordered anything for it. what type of ram is it laptop style the smaller stuff yes yeah okay yeah it's the small stuff i think it's ddr4 do i recall reading that thing will take up to 64 gigs of ram yes i believe that is the case i need to i i should have grabbed the specs before the show i'm so excited it's funny right because when the pi 4 died i was like crap i don't know what i'm gonna do i don't I have nothing I want to replace this with. I'm like, I guess I could build it around another Pi 4 again, but then I'm not really going, I'm going through all this work and I'm not getting a performance upgrade. And then this thing shows up just a little bit after last episode. Yeah, it's perfect timing. I, they actually shipped it. I got it. I, I can't believe it. 
I can't believe it. I think what I want to do is first is I want to I want to load desktop Linux on here just to see what it's like, and then I'll wipe it off immediately and start building. I think a Nix OS server. I mean, it looks amazing, and I, I shared it with you for this exact reason. It's got a passive heatsink on it, so you know it can run completely, completely silently, which is perfect for a small space like the RV. Yes, totally. The only thing I would change about it, and I I don't have one, but the only thing I would change about it is the fact that both of those NICs are Realtek 2.5 gig NICs. I would have preferred two Intel NICs just simply for better hardware compatibility reasons. You know, Realtek's probably fine, but if ever I've had a NIC issue in the past, it's been not an Intel NIC and a Quantia or Realtek or something like that. Whereas Intel NICs just work and it takes all the problems away. And But anyway, it's a, it, it, I'm nitpicking. Otherwise, it's a fantastic looking board. I imagine they'll be fine, but I also 100% agree with you. I would also prefer that, though I'm just excited to have a NIC that isn't on the USB bus. So, you know, that's good too. I don't think it was for the Pi 4, but it is for most of the Pis. And if you wanted to ever add a secondary NIC to the Raspberry Pi to like use it for a firewall or something like that, you would be doing that over USB. So for me, it's like, okay, at least they're on the PCI bus. And then it would be nice if they were Intel, but I'll take on the PCI bus. So what are you going to run on it? Proxmox and then virtualize like Home Assistant that way or? Oh, I should consider Proxmox, huh? Well, you know, I'm still kind of subscribed to the no container theory for a lot of this stuff. And NixOS would be really good for that. But it does make a lot of sense to have Proxmox sitting on there. And I, I shouldn't have any problem passing QuickSync through, right? That should be fine. So what would you need to pass it through for? Plex. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll come on to this topic later in the show because it's actually been coming up quite a lot in Discord lately about LXC versus Docker versus VMs, all that kind of stuff. We'll, we'll come to that in, later. Please remind me if I forget. But in the meantime, I also saw another update in the news feed this week that I thought would make you a happy little bunny. Apple, with I think iOS 16.1, are actually shipping. It's real. It's really happening, people. They're shipping Matter. <laughs> this is my week, man. This is my week. <laughs> it's all coming together, buddy. And the thing is, they're shipping it on the HomePod. They're updating the HomePod to support Matter. And they just announced today as we record a new Apple TV and the fancier version that has Ethernet also supports Thread and Matter. So they're, I mean, surprisingly going all in for Apple, at least. I don't really know if this changes what I'm going to do hardware wise in terms of like sensors and devices yet, but I am curious what it means for accessibility of Apple's remote control features to like Home Assistant. Like when Home Assistant gets their hands on this, maybe I'll have remote integrated control even better than I did before without even having to use HomeKit at all or something. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> What's important about this update coming out now, Apple being the first mover, I think, in actually shipping, you know, provider level support for this stuff. It's a very strange place for Apple to be. But anyway, you've already got HomePods, you've already got Apple TVs. So for you, you could just purchase one or two Matter devices and kind of dip your toe in nice and early and get get a feeling for it without having to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on all new sensors and all new whatever. Uh, and you can just do a couple of things and kind of drip feed this stuff in as, as support lands in Home Assistant and that kind of stuff. Which is probably the best way to go, right? Because I guess if history is to be our teacher, 
it's very possible that the Rev One devices could be kind of so-so, and this thing takes a couple of revisions. And no, <laughs> no, <laughs> the first iPhone was perfect. Yeah, right, right. Of course, and the first wireless communications protocols are always perfect too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm seeing the reaction to the H3, the Odroid H3 that we just talked about in the Discord chat. It's probably a good job you got one because I think half our audience are about to buy one. <laughs> I, I've got to imagine they would be because it seems like the perfect device for what we do. I mean, low power, but performance where it counts. NVMe storage instead of a EMMC or SSD. And of course, having those two SATA ports. I have a request for you. Could you do some energy monitoring for us and like compare what a Pi draws versus this thing? Because my argument to you for all these years has been, look how much more powerful x86 is for the same power budget. So I'm curious as to what that in reality is. Is that true or not? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great thing to check. I will. I'm I'm also wondering, you know, should I figure out what my power budget is? I've always just kind of played fast and loose, you know, three, three, four pies down to two pies. So if I look at that, like what would four pies have taken versus having everything on just two devices? The yellow, which I expect is going to be, you know, what a CM4 takes plus a little bit more. And then now this H-Droid or O-Droid H3. I, I'm I'm expecting somewhere around five to six watts idle, and then who knows when it's ramped up. We'll find out. You just got to figure it out, eh? Figure it out. I thought I'd continue my journey down the whole home audio rabbit hole exploration spelunking exercise that I've been doing recently. Lots of people write in, give me lots of excellent recommendations of different things to try. Volumio is still on my list of things to try. However, I thought I would try out the big dog in the room or the in the rune. The big dog uh, in the rune. I see what you did uh, there. Terrible. I tried out rune this week for all of you lovely people. I love it. I didn't want to because <laughs> it's bet. so damn expensive. Yeah. But uh, rune bills itself as the audiophile player for music fanatics. So essentially you uh, run a piece of software on a NAS or a computer or a you know, server like I have. And it goes through and it catalogs all of your FLAC files, all of all of your all of your audio. So it can be lossy stuff, it can be lossless, whatever. All right, that sounds great. I've got about a quarter of a million files that I've acquired over the years. A lot of them have ripped, actually, uh, of CD rips I did a decade plus ago. I went before I donated all my CDs to the charity shop. The performance has been fine. You know, it it indexed that quarter of a million files in. I don't know, six hours or so, maybe three, four, five, six hours, something like that. Is this running on a Windows machine, Linux machine, Mac? I'm running it in a Docker container on my Linux server, but you can run it on a Windows machine too. So they do offer it as a Docker container. Yeah. They, uh, well, I don't know if they officially do, but they certainly, it's certainly possible because it's just a, it's just a Linux app. The real issue with it though, is that to, to run this uh, server, they charge... <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this. They charge me $10 a month for access to my own files. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's bring your own streaming service. Bring your own music streaming service, essentially. It does have a couple of nice features. Like it integrates with Tidal and Cobuzz for high-res uh, gap filling in your library. So let's say you're missing an album or a new album came out that you haven't bought yet or something like that. It will automatically go to Tidal and Cobuzz if you have an active subscription with those two services and pull it in and fill in the gaps for you, which is 
which is really nice. And it tries to automatically prioritize the highest quality version of a track available. So let's say I had an MP3 in my local library, but Cobuzz has a high res, you know, high res mastered version of it. It will play the Cobuzz version, which I really liked. Yeah, that does seem like the way you'd want it. And I guess that $10 is going towards the access to the licenses to stream that stuff automatically. Uh, I guess so. But um, Rune's killer feature, and I, I say this genuinely out of love, is the way it presents metadata. So you end up with this kind of like magazine view of, of an album. So let's say I'm, I'm listening to some Led Zeppelin or something, and it, it, it shows me Led Zepp 4. That's the best Led Zepp album, in my opinion. And so I go in, go in there and I look at it and I click on one of the tracks and I can see on the credits, you know, all the different people associated with a specific album and, you know, who produced it, who did the mixing for it. And if you're a, if you're a proper audio nerd, you can go down the rabbit hole really deep, really fast, because each of the names and each of the albums mentioned in the, in the description about this thing is a link. And that's powered on their server side. You know, for example, Stephen Wilson is, is one of my personal uh, musical heroes. He's in a band called Porcupine Trees and a bunch of solo stuff as well. And he is probably the most famous musician you've never heard of. Like he, he works with all, he does mixes film soundtracks and all kinds of stuff. And so when I dig into Stephen's profile, I get to see everything he's associated with and everything he's worked as an engineer on and worked as an editor on and... Before you know it, you found 10 new bands you didn't know you liked because it's got some of your favorite influences in. So that's amazing. The, the way it presents metadata is, is genuinely Rune's killer, killer feature. The other thing that uh, I like about it is the fact it does multi-room audio, much in the same way as like a Sonos does. Uh, you have a little icon in your playback client and then you can just check a box and, and suddenly you've got two devices playing in sync. That doesn't sound too incredible until I explain the scenario that really blew my mind. So Rune has this thing called Rune Advanced Audio Transport, RAT. That runs on anything that runs a Rune Ready or a Rune Native client. So certain amplifiers have been certified by Rune and by the man by you know Marantz and Denon and all these big guys. They pay Rune a small fee and they embed the Rune Ready receiver software into their network streamers you can also run a rat ready device on a windows pc a mac computer an ios device a raspberry pi and so you can cast effectively it's not quite casting but you, you can stream music to any rat ready device in sync no matter what os it's running so just paint this like i've got my ipad out on the deck where i'm grilling some meats in the lounge next door, I've got a Raspberry Pi plugged into a Hi-Fi running Linux. In the room next door, I've got my laptop running Mac OS. And all three of those devices are playing audio perfectly in sync that I'm controlling from my iPhone with a single checkbox. Oh, that's, that is pretty glorious. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. All the machines, all the speakers, all the OSs. The catch... And unfortunately, I think there's probably some technical limitations here at play, is that you can only stream like that to devices that are part of the same kind of ecosystem. So I can only group devices that are, are RAT devices. I can only group Chromecast devices together. I can only group AirPlay devices together. 
I can't stream to an AirPlay and a Chromecast device at the same time. Do you have any idea why? That's a pretty interesting limitation. Well, I mean, AirPlay, the way it buffers the stream is quite different to how Chromecast buffers the stream. So it's using their native protocols. It's not using like a client on that. Oh, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Well, that's what the rat stuff is doing. So the rat stuff is running a native client on the specific device or iOS or, or whatever. And that's why you can't group them together. And I I was a little bit deflated to start with when I found that out because I had this magical vision of all the Google Home Nest Mini hub things I have around the house and all my computers and my everything all working perfectly in sync. And unfortunately, that isn't the case. <laughs> what if you bought the Nucleus Plus, which is their $2,600 server that, uh, that you can buy from them? How do you know this service is aimed at audio files, huh? <laughs> to tell right i mean it's a cool looking case i'll give them that it's a beautiful ecosystem yeah they've they've got um so you can run this rune core this server software you can run it in a docker container like i am you can run it on a synology on on a, a computer but rune also sell this thing called the nucleus and chris is showing on the stream now something called the whirlwind which is a rack mount version of the same thing it's so great that one's forty five hundred dollars, yeah. by the way. <laughs> and you know what's funny is if you actually dig into the specs page on these these pages, there is zero information about what CPU is in there. There is a page where they just say they have a on their partners page, they say they have partnered with Intel. Yeah, that's it. I mean who who's to say whether it's a Celeron from two thousand and three <laughs> <laughs> or whether it's an I core I seven twelfth gen. I mean, I, I I imagine it's neither, but we don't know. And that that's the point, right? It's a black box, literally. Yeah. And when, and when you're dropping that kind of cash, I guess, you know, and of course the answer is they're selling this to a market who couldn't care less. We realize that, but it's still, it wouldn't kill them to put the specs on there. If you go by the ports, it looks like it's a knuck in there. I have to say. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, if, if we can get over the price of this thing, because I, I, I mentioned the monthly price. I didn't mention they also offer a lifetime pass okay. for $700. I mean, if you're really stuck with it and they stuck around, mm. you know, you got somewhere between five to 10 years out of this and it had high spousal approval, maybe. I mean, I could see that. So Rune as a company was founded, I think, in 2015. And so if you'd bought into Rune in 2015 and paid $700, you would only just be breaking even on your monthly subscription. Just put that into perspective. Seven years is a long time for an ROI on that kind of thing. Yeah. And I wrestled with this pretty hard before I actually tried Rune out. You know, I wanted to hate it because it was expensive. I wanted to hate it because it was closed source. But then I thought, well, so's Plex, isn't it? And you like Plex just fine. And so I kind of came to terms with it and got over myself and thought, yeah, you know, it's fine. You can try it out and uh, you'll you'll hate it anyway. <laughs> I don't. I love it. <laughs> the trouble is, just as I've been doing this, they've made a big release. They've just released the 2.0, the version 2, which if you're a rune aficionado is a huge deal. But to me as a newbie, it's just unstable, right? <laughs> so you're familiar with Plexamp, right? The, the app that lets you play your Plex music remotely. Love it. Rune have just released an equivalent app called Rune Arc, A-R-C. And this lets you access all of your Rune music outside the house. As it stands, the Rune desktop and mobile clients that already existed 
only worked if you were on your LAN and directly connected to your Rune core. Uh, I couldn't get it to work over Tailscale remotely, so Rune Arc kind of bridges that gap for a lot of people. However, this brings us to the cons section of my document. I don't really know how else to say this, but Rune with 2.0 have have shot their uh, what's the what's, they're kind of eating their own face, okay? And and the reason I say that is because. Firstly, they're charging me $10 a month for access to my own files, plus the metadata, plus the integrations with Tidal and Cobuzz. Okay. However, it gets worse. They guarantee with the 2.0 update, zero minutes of offline playback. If the Rune core cannot connect to the internet, Rune's position is that they guarantee zero minutes of playback because they don't want to have to pay out when somebody's wi-fi goes down or their router takes a crap something like that you think well according to johnny darko who is the the source of this information he spoke to i think his name is danny over at rune about this there's a link in the show notes to this video because it's I, I couldn't quite believe what i was watching and you know johnny darko is a proper audiophile and i i trust his opinion almost implicitly on an awful lot of audio gear and just I, I like the way his videos feel I like the way he presents information uh, he's a British guy living in I think Berlin oh so we, <laughs> yeah <laughs> we've got to stick together you know but what's interesting is Johnny is clearly not a techno guy like us right and listening to someone who's who's operating on the edge of their understanding about how some of these technologies on the server side of things work, it's really interesting because it shows you actually that I think Rune are just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. And I don't say that lightly. And the reason I do say it is because the Rune projects say they're doing this um, always online connectivity thing for the server because they want to move a lot of the processing to the cloud and to move the product forward and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of the local processing that currently happens on the nucleus, on the rune core, on my local network is moving into the cloud. And they say that they'll be able to batch stuff up and make it more efficient and kind of, you know, deduplicate a lot of, you know, template matching and all that kind of stuff, which I get, which I understand and does actually make some semblance of sense. However, we're talking about this through a lens of self-hosting, right? That's the name of the, the podcast, right? Just imagine a situation where your internet goes out for half an hour every day and you suddenly can't play back the files on your NAS under your desk in your basement. You know, it's just unacceptable on a huge number of levels for me personally. And I think despite how much I love Rune so far and, you know, the, the 2.0 release has been a little buggy and, you know, not perfect, a little rough around the edges, I just can't adopt a product that costs this much money and compromises on such a fundamental capability like that or of an offline self-hosted type product. It's just, I just can't. Yeah, that's a, very, that's a fair point, especially when you consider there's people out there that maybe they're on Starlink and they're having a bad day or they're on LTE and they're having a bad day. and Or they live in the third world and the entire island is connected through a single satellite type yeah. people. That that's surely is not a big part of Rune's core audience. Starlink customers, 
I could see the Starlink customers. Though. Starlink people are out there, you know. You know, and the thing is, is like it's sort of taking away one of the biggest advantages of you collecting all that stuff locally for so many years, and it's just. At, at that point, why not just have a CoBuzz subscription or a Tidal subscription? What what value is Rune adding if I can't even, let's say, you know, one of my friend's dads was uh, is out of power for like eight to ten days with Hurricane Ian a couple of weeks ago, you know? Yikes. It's just no good. It's no good. You know, for the pricing, especially if you were looking at server hardware, you could almost just afford to just buy sets of speakers for every single room and just put a dedicated hardware device on them and just call it good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's that it was, it does sound like it was really nice for a moment though. The alternative is Sonos really that that's got this level of fit and finish and polish and all the rest of it. But Sonos is just hardware. And, and as we talked about uh, several episodes ago, when Sonos decide that a device is no longer supported, suddenly that perfectly good speaker cone and that perfectly good amplifier unit become a brick thanks to their business model you know and uh that's a thing it's frustrating um so i think that the next one to look at is probably volumio although i've heard mixed reports about that and i certainly don't expect the level of fit and finish i've seen from rune the other one to keep an eye on is plexamp headless there's there's been some pretty good movement over there lately i i think they're working on multi-room audio stuff but it won't have the Rune audio transport stuff, so I doubt it will be quite as polished again. But who knows? Who knows where this where this will go? But uh, that's my review of Rune, people. Fascinating. Thank you for updating us on that. We've been getting a good series of feedback on multi-room audio. It's something people are trying to solve. And I know there's got to be somebody out there that's like, just get a Pi Zero, you know, or something like that. But who do you really have time? Well, uh, Rune, sorry to come back to Rune again, but uh, I'm running one of the playbacks devices is a, a, a Rupee, a, a Raspberry Pi running the Rune server. <laughs> right. Okay. So I am using Raspberry Pi as part of this as well. So, you know, maybe one day I'll find the perfect solution, but I think until Rune guarantee, I don't know, seven days before the server, the core has to phone home again. It used to be 30 days, the grace period, by the way with 1.8, which is the previous release, used to be 30 days, and now it's zero minutes. It's just a hard sell. Yeah, especially when you're paying 10 bucks a month. Feels like you, uh, you know, when you're, paying, when you're paying for something like that that's using your own media, they should give you grace periods like that. 30 days sounds about right. That's, that's about it. Docker versus LXC versus a VM. You teased it earlier in the show, and it's been a point of conversation recently. Yeah, Monkey Angst and I were talking on Discord and he he wrote in saying, I'm trying to decide between using an LXC or another containerization technology. What are you using these days, Alex, and why? Well, the short answer is Docker and Docker and more Docker, plus uh, some virtualization and think that's a oh, and I suppose in the cloud too, there's a couple of things up there. Most of that stuff's running in Docker too. And uh, I'm just going to, you know, preface everything I'm about to say by saying that it's it's personal choice, and there's more than one way to skin a particular cat in this in this arena. The way I do it is I run everything in Docker because Docker Compose is awesome. It's a great way to manage your personal systems. It's a great way to separate without really having to do much of anything. Separate out the application and the data, and just from a system building standpoint. That is a great design practice, and Docker just gives it to you as a general practice. Uh, and the other thing about LXCs to consider is that uh, the benefits of them is that it gives you an init system. So for those that aren't familiar, an init system is something like System D. 
With a typical Docker container or some kind of other Linux container, what happens is the main process inside that container gets given PID1, process ID 1. And when that PID dies, the container dies with it. The same, by the way, is true of your Linux server or your Linux desktop or whatever you're running uh, Linux on. When PID1 dies, the system dies, and typically that PID1 is system D these days. In an LXC, what happens is you get an init system like system D. My biggest gripe with LXC generally, and there's two really, one is that it's an extra layer of complexity that not that many people are using. Some people in our self-hosted community are using it, but generally it's on the fringes compared to the number of people that are using Docker, Docker containers. The second thing is that running more than one process in an isolated environment like that is a bit of an anti-pattern. And the reason I say that is because, because containers are designed to be this black box almost of, of just a single block with a single purpose. And if you start trying to run more than one service inside that container, so let's say system D plus a web server, on the face of it, you're only running one service, right? A web server, but actually you're running two, you're running an init system plus a web server, which is a whole bunch of overhead that you A, don't need, and B, technically speaking, is, like I said, a bit of an anti-pattern. And so the, the other thing it gives you is, is some issues, well, not issues, it's not the right word, but added complexity around passing hardware through. So like QuickSync, for example, which I think is what we talked about earlier in the show. If you're running QuickSync in a Docker container, it's a couple of lines to pass through the render device uh, to QuickSync, uh, running in Plex or, or whatever. Yeah, it's no big deal. With LXC, there can be some compatibility issues. Uh, it's a similar thing. You've got to pass it through, but there, I can never remember if it has a distinct lock on the GPU once you pass it through to an LXC or not. So somebody in the chat could update in real time. I'd appreciate it. But then the other thing you've got to consider is if you want to run multiple services in one isolated environment, that's exactly what a VM has been designed to do. The tooling around VMs is extremely mature at this point. They're very, very well understood. And I don't know, like LXCs for me fall into this awkward middle ground of not quite knowing who they're for. It's not to say they're a bad technology because I think LXCs do have their place just they just don't in my world personally you know yeah well and and you know i think they're also a little more popular in the ubuntu ecosystem as well which is probably just not as prevalent in the north america area so i think there's that element as well i like what you're saying though about vms just to step back a little bit there your point about the vm is sometimes the right tooling and people shouldn't feel be, feel bad about it i think is underscored by the fact the VM performance, it's like, it's not your grandpa's VM anymore. Uh, on modern hardware with modern virtualization software, VMs can be extremely performant, way better than they were when we were emulating the entire hardware stack. Because these days, not only do we have para-virtualized devices, but there's also just been a lot of plumbing in the kernel to get virtual driver requests to the physical hardware so much faster than, you know, they were even four or five years ago. Exactly. I mean, you think about all those cloud servers that are running virtualized stacks. Uh, a lot of that investment trickles down to us mere mortals. You know, a lot of those improvements end up in the kernel one way or another. So, yeah, the, the other thing we didn't talk about at all yet is Podman. And I know I know, being a Red Hatter, I should probably be a bit more pro-Podman, but 
for me, the tooling's just still not quite there yet. You know, I, I rely on Compose all the time for I- interacting with all of my services. And I know Podman Compose exists and I've tried it several times, but it's still just... It's not 100%. It's not quite there. Yeah. It's like 90% or so, but it's not 100%. I, I have the same opinion. I feel like Podman is a better design uh, system architecturally. Uh, it feels cleaner. It feels more native as well. But then again, you have like monsters in our chat room that are running Docker in LX. Oh my goodness. So. <laughs> well, you can run Docker in Docker in Docker in a VM. Right. You know? These are the these are the people that show up to our live streams. Yeah, Alex. right. <laughs> <laughs> I said so the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Very interesting. I'd love also to hear other people's opinions on it too. So do feel free to go to the contact page or send us a boost. There was discussion going on on Reddit that I wanted to just kind of touch on because I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I had something I think is actionable. And the question is, and Alex, I liked this question a lot because it's being honest with themselves. And I think it's something all of us self-hosters should think about. How do I prepare for a time when I'm just tired of tinkering with Home Assistant? That's the question that was on Reddit. And I love it because it's like this guy writes, I've used Home Assistant for the last six months and I've had a blast tinkering with the platform. I've got 100 plus devices. Everything is working as intended. And I know from experience there'll come a time when I just don't find home automation as flattering anymore, but I'll still need my lights and whatnot to function properly. So how do I prepare for this day? Uh, this is this is really I need to take this advice in as well. Now, I, I've always remained pretty fascinated. Home Assistant moves quick. The community moves quick. It hasn't lost my attention. But things have. And, you know, it's, it's, we can, as geeks, I think we're just kind of prone to the new shiny sometimes as well. Do you have any hot tips on how to, like, prepare your infrastructure for when you are bored with it? Do you have anything off the top of your mind? Don't get bored at the time where it's broken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's such a hard question because I, I, I'm aware that the raindrop of inspiration in the desert of uh computer of, of you know there's several things have to line up in order for me to be interested enough to tinker with something i have to have enough free time in my mind and i'm always underestimate how long something's going to take so if i think it's going to take four hours i know i've got to estimate i've got to have a whole day free and if it if it's quicker than that great i mean that's often not the case with home assistant but sometimes it is probably the best advice i can give and it's not terribly wisdomful, but is just try and break down the things you're trying to accomplish into small tasks, small batches of stuff. Let's say you want to get a specific room behaving a certain way, or you want to get just a couple of new lights added or something. And try not to leave anything half finished when you go to sleep or something like that. I know it's not always possible because you know, I'll wake up tomorrow and my interests will be in cars tomorrow, not home assistant or what you know how it is. And uh, for me, leaving stuff half done when I go to sleep is the enemy because A, I've loaded it into context, like in my personal RAM buffer or whatever, and loading it back in again is going to take a long time, typically. Sometimes going for a walk or whatever, you know, can be the solution. We've also got to get the motivation program running again, too. So it's not just the context and the data and the state, but it's also you got to get motivated again. Also, the caffeination station has to be fired up too, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, you know, essentially just break things down into atomic blocks, really. Yeah, and complete it one room at a time and complete it uh, as much as you can. That's a great, and that's a great tip. Yeah, and I find that helps with motivation too, because if you actually think, right, I've done that and it works as, as intended, 
next time, you know, you'll be like, oh, well, I, yeah, I actually achieved what I set out to do. And it can be a, a self-perpetuate, self-fulfilling cycle of improvement. I think that's probably how I should probably attack, like, the rebuild of the sensors and all the switches and stuff in jupes. It's probably just one room at a time. And it'll, you know, it'll go quick. Also, you are your own worst enemy. Write this down. Document your crap because you will forget. You think you won't. You think you remember it. But trust me, you won't. (laughs) You got to write it down. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I have one bit of wisdom from my whole, my home assistant's been unavailable. And this is what this guy is worried about. Like it would crash and he just wouldn't have the motivation to fix it. This is something you can do in Z-Wave, but I read how to do it in Zigbee, and this seems like the thing to do. It's called device binding. So you can bind a light switch to a particular light, for example. You can bind two Zigbee devices together so they can control each other without the central coordinator. So they, as long as they're both on the network and both devices support binding, you can have them operate without Home Assistant even running. And this is incredible because it means like all of like your switches and buttons and those types of things continue to work even if your server is crashed. And so this is definitely something I want to look into for at least a few core devices, like switches to turn lights on and off. Those always need to work. And I don't really have the flexibility to like open it up and like install a Shelby in the or Shelly in the wall because uh, my walls are like two inches thick (laughs) they're thinner than the shelly is uh so i have to go with the soft button route which means when home assistant's down no light switches which is crazy just absolutely crazy and so something like binding would keep it working and give you the time to continue to operate your stuff without having to actually get the server up and running and they have groups and all kinds of stuff and i've read that people also get this working with their phillips hues so you can use binding with the hues lights as well I'll have a link in the show notes for more information about binding. Adopt technologies that you own the firmware of. You know, Tasmotor is a great example. Don't rely on a cloud-based service. You know, buy the right hardware, all that kind of stuff. Try try and buy with the idea that you want it to just keep working until the hardware physically stops working would be a great idea. <laughs> I like the chat room. Serverless IoT. Nice. It is kind of, isn't it? You're right, Aaron. That's pretty cool. We got some boosts into the show. Check out this. Erero? <laughs> Erero? I'm so sorry, dude. Erero. 135,000 sats was sent into the show this week. He says it's Holy not a moly. I know. In fact, I'm going to buy a boat. <laughs> that put us on the hot list. So in Fountain, uh, you, you know, highly boosted shows, I believe it was this boost, put, put self-hosted on the hot list, and then pe- new people find the show. So when you send a big boost in, it's, it, we're, we, the show trends. And then people discover us. It's really great. So, uh, Herrero writes, Herrero writes, I'm, it's not a million dollars, but these are all the sats I have. I'm currently thinking of automating the lighting around my flat and I'm unable to pick between smart lights or smart switches. What are the pros and cons of each one? Thanks, Alex, Chris, and Brent. Fairly easy answer, actually. Switches mean that your bulbs stay powered all the time and you can, so you can control the switch that you retain physical control of the switch and you also gain the ability to control that switch remotely as well whereas if you just go for a smart bulb and someone turns the light switch off uh-oh you're out of luck yeah and it's also just way more approachable by every other single human on the face of the planet and so if you have anybody else that's going to be in the space with you 
what what I I literally have on my switches here in the studio, I have tape over them that says no touch because like people just flip light switches all the time. And it still happens when we, when we have a meetup here at the studio, inevitably like a listener will just walk out of the studio and they'll just instinctively flip the light switch off. You know, they'll even flip it right through the tape. Read the FM, huh? (laughs) What? What is it? RTFM. Oh, (laughs) even if it's just a bit of tape on the light switch, you know, you've got an RTFM. Yeah, that's true. Read the tape. Uh, Prozac boosted with 1200 sats. Just thanking Alex for sharing your secret sauce. And so I thought just in case people missed it last episode, we should probably put the Badger Stack link in the uh, show notes for an overview of Alex's setup. People have been liking that. PA or page dot boosted in with 3,333 sets. Hi, please take a look at the Funk Whale Project. It's a federated music service with a great GUI, active development, a subsonic API, mobile app, and financial support. I use it without the federation for my personal library, but I really like it because they really managed to keep me up to date and involve the community in their decisions. I just wanted to share. So I went and looked at it super quick. And I'm going to put this on my checkout. This and Jellyfin, which I realize are not quite the same, but Jellyfin's uh, the Jellyamp app that people are working on, and this Funk Whale, I think could be great solutions for my music uses. Because I'm not so much looking for a whole home sync so much as I am just looking for something that could expose a local music collection to me in a way that I could consume when I want to listen, mostly in the car or on, or on HomePods. Funk Whale's really nice. Funkwhale.audio. Are you familiar with it, Alex? I tried it out once a few months ago and then just for some reason it didn't stick can't remember why if i might interrupt the boosts for a second we're having a live question in the chat room breaking news what is the boost address we've got jupiterbroadcasting.com slash boost but then what so you need a new podcast app because it's an rss feed based thing so it's in the the uh, boost address is in the rss feed so you get a new podcast app and that reads that rss tag and then automatically adds a button to your playback screen. There's also um, a browser extension, which I was actually going to suggest to you after the show, Alex, called Alby, A-L-B-Y. And that lets you do it in a browser-based environment. And the reason I was going to mention it to you is they've launched a new platform called Saturn. Saturn. And I think it's like, uh, I don't know for sure, actually. I have to look at it. But I think it's, it's kind of like having your own node. And then you could get a copy of the messages and a split of the sats with Saturn, I think. And then I don't think you have to set up a whole node, but Albi is an open source project for a lightning wallet in the browser. I don't generally like it because, you know, I don't like stuff built into the browser, but I had a chance to talk to the co-founder and, you know, ask him my questions about security and open source practices and actually walked away with a pretty good op- opinion of where they're at. So ALBY for that. Then you could just, uh, you could boost from the website using our new player on the website. Otherwise, it requires a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. And then one day, soon, one day, Alex, I have a dream. Jupiter Broadcasting will be generating all of our own RSS feeds independently. We use a service provider called Fireside right now. It's very common practice to have a service generate your RSS feeds or like a WordPress plugin or something because you never want them to screw up. So like people have just like specialized in that because it's like your radio signal. But right now we don't generate our own RSS feed but we want to, and then we'll start taking advantage of even more podcasting 2.0 features like transcripts and uh, host information in there, like, you know, guest, more of guest information, richer context around that kind of stuff. And a big one that I'm really looking forward to, I don't know what we'll use it for exactly yet, alternative enclosures. So like maybe like an MP4 file or 
an Opus file if people want an Opus version, or I don't know. But it's so your your podcast player will just it'll see the entry, and then in the player you'll just choose like which format you want because we can just specify multiple formats in one RSS feed entry with podcasting Tudodo. In the past, and you've probably seen JB has like so many different RSS feeds because any variation of file type you had to do a whole new RSS feed because that's just how these players worked back then. So it's a whole new generation over there. Very excited about it. I think it's going to be big for podcasting. And I think it's the way to keep podcasting decentralized and self-hosted because the other big trend in the podcasting industry is consolidation with Spotify and players like that. And then they do dynamic ad insertion. They do the hosting. They manage your RSS feed and the podcaster doesn't have any control over it. And I think decentralization is key to keeping podcasting healthy. And I think self-hosting plays a big role in that. Fun Deck Hermit boosted in with 2,346 sats. Hey, guys, I wanted to mention an amazing newish feature of our clone. You can now use a Docker plugin to mount the local or cloud storage directly as a Docker volume. That's great for host isolation and separation. That is great. Our clone for the win. Yeah. So I guess you could use, you know, like Google Drive as a Docker volume. I wonder what the latency is like, but that sounds amazing. I mean, if you're just writing like an encrypted tar file or something. Yeah, for something like my uh, smoke ping, you know, history or something like that, that might be nice. That uh, I would like to keep around, but I don't really care that much about it. Maybe. I'll, I'll investigate. That sounds pretty cool. Thanks, Fun Deck Hermit. Last couple boosts for this week, although we did read all of them. We only feature some of them in the show. Soltros boosted with 9,000 sats. I recently got into Docker. After refusing to let go of my VM obsession. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any tips out there for use case scenarios or cool project I can run at my home on my Ubuntu home server? Right now I have Nextcloud, Plex, and a few other odds and ends. Well, over at perfectmediaserver.com, I have a list of my top 10 recommended apps to run on your new media server. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, if you have any other recommendations, let us know at selfhosted.show slash contact. Look at that. And, you know, just keep listening to the show because as you listen, you'll hear us mention our favorite apps over and over again. Like Alex just name dropped Smoke Ping. That's a great one. It's a classic. You know, it's funny. I got Smoke Ping from Linux Action Show back in the day, way before you knew me. And then I wrapped it up as a Docker container on uh, LinuxServer.io and then now it's a thing. (laughs) I know. And then I grabbed it one day and I'm like, hey, it pings Jupiter Broadcasting. That's awesome. Yeah, that's why. That's why it pings JB. Because I put you in there, bro. And it really is a great example of like an app that probably should be in a container because it's kind of super old and legacy in a lot of ways and you don't want it on your whole system. Our last boost of the episode came in from Bronzewing, who boosted 9,001 sats over 9,000. There's another option called Mood, M-O-O-D-E, Moody, perhaps, that runs on a Pi and says it can do multi-room audio. And uh, we have a link in there to moodaudio.org. It's free, and you can get a hi-fi Barry amp and put speakers on that in each room, controlled by a web interface, and that interface is mobile-friendly. I hear it's actually better than Volumio. It could be the complete solution worth checking out. It does look nice. Yeah. I think when my Rune free trial expires, which I think I've got another week left on, I think I'll probably have to give Volumio a spin next and then uh, move on to this mood thing after that. But uh, I, I'll i be honest with you, people, I'm getting a little fatigued with the music situation and I'll probably just go back to Spotify for a few months whilst I just calm down again. <laughs> I'm just going to ship you like six HomePods and you'll be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know it's not what you want. I know. 
I know. Uh, I also want to say thank you to John A., who sent 2,000 sats. He's going to be switching to Podverse. That is one of those new podcast apps that is totally GPL, web, Android, iOS, and it's an F-Droid. And I really appreciated that when I switched to Graphene. And then Schmitzfeld, who Brent appropriately pronounces, uh, mentioned that it was recently his first boost ever that he sent into the show. And he also is a big fan of replacing the Raspberry Pi with a small, low-power PC. He's had great results, he says. So I will let you guys know how the Odroid H3 Plus works out. I'm super excited about that. And then that old uh, power wall or solar wall device, I have a couple of ideas. And I think I have a couple outside-the-box places where I could mount that because it is so rugged, too. All projects for future episodes. That H3 is the type of device that I'm trying to think of a project for that I don't already have a solution for. Like, I want to yeah. buy one. I just I just don't know why, what I'd use it for. I want one, though. I mean, maybe you'll get lucky and your server will die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can hope. Hopefully not, dude. Hopefully not. And as you know, self-hosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. You can find me over on Twitter at Ironic Badger. Oh, do we want to tease all things open at all? Any updates there? Oh, yeah, we could do. Coming up around Halloween, all things open in Raleigh. If you're going to be in town, keep an eye on the meetup page. Uh, I don't know if we do the official Jupiter Broadcasting meetup or just the Raleigh room. Probably just the Raleigh room on Matrix. Could do. Either way. Uh, myself and Cheese Bacon, longtime friend of the network, will be there. He's uh, supporting a booth for System76 at the conference. Uh, so I'll be at the conference too, and we might go out for a drinky poo in the evening after one of the talks. We'll oh, see. Now I want to go. I really wanted to go to All Things Open. It's too much traveling, but I yeah. really want to go. Next year, remember Halloween, Raleigh, and you'll... Uh... I think so. I think so. Also, I'll mention we have our Discord server. You can find that on our self-hosted website. And we also have a couple of self-hosted Matrix chat rooms. That's at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. And then the podcast itself, at Self Hosted Show, on Twitter. And I do really mean it. I know, I know I say this every single week about thanks for listening, everybody. But genuinely, if you made it this far in the show, thank you very much for listening. This is selfhosted.show slash 82. You really kind of got me thinking maybe I should try to do a software upgrade on the car. Because that feels like, you know, pretty minor in terms of overall altercations to the car. With sounds like a pretty reasonable return. So uh, the, you've got to pay to play, right? Because you're voiding your drivetrain warranty when mm, you do this. Sure, sure. So if I now go to VW and my turbo blows up, they're going to point at me and be like, well, you flashed your car with aftermarket software, you dummy. Well, you got to reflash it before you give it to them. Uh, Can you do that? Yeah. That presupposes it's not completely banjaxed but um it does there is a flag in the ecu that says i have previously been flashed and vw will pick up that uh pick up that flag i never thought about that yeah like a break glass kind of moment so once you flash that's it you're kind of on your own in the powertrain i mean like let's say my radio stops working or something like that like they'd have a hard time arguing that was because of the tune but if my turbo goes pop pop then um well, that's probably on me. It's probably a couple of thousand on a, on a turbo. So I had to buy this little cell phone size thing called a Cobb access port. They are brand new, seven or eight hundred dollars. I got mine for about two hundred off a guy in a parking lot outside a meetup. Atta boy! <laughs> I I was totally think I thought I was being scammed, but for that kind of price, 
it was kind of worth the risk, you know. And you didn't. It worked out. So it did because because these devices have to be married to a specific transmission and a specific ECU. No kidding. And once once the little access port gets married to that vehicle, it's paired for life. They they, they make no guarantees about it being able to be used by future owners. Wow, that's an interesting little catch. Yeah. So you got seven eight hundred dollars in for the access port. Then for the ability for the access port to flash the transmission, which is separate from the ECU, the DSG transmission, there's another $400 fee, which you've got to pay, which thankfully the previous dude had already paid on this one as well. Wow. So I got I got $1,200 worth of access port for about two two fifty something like that. Nice. And then the tunes are the cheap part, right? So I paid 175 each for the ECU tune and for the DSG tune. And the process is quite butt clenching because you have to turn, do things like turn off your Bluetooth in the car because if your phone pairs during the process, it can screw the flash up. And obviously, if your ECU dies halfway through, yeah, you've got no engine management system, so the car won't even start. So I had it on a hooked up to a, a twenty amp battery tender whilst I was doing the flash just to make sure that didn't happen. <laughs> smart though you leave the engine off uh you have to turn off your headlights turn off a climate control everything to save power right sure uh it took about 35 minutes end to end the first flash because it backs up the entire ecu to the access port you don't get access to those files directly but if you ever want to return it to stock you get that ability you also get some pretty other nice cool stuff i didn't know like i, I looked at the files that the the tuners gave me and uh you can do stuff like checkboxes that says, like, enable burbles in sport mode. So you get the little pop-pops in the exhaust. Amazing they can do that. Yeah. Wow. Loads of other stuff. Like, they change the shift points. They they prevent, you know, you know when you're accelerating hard and it does the automatic upshift? Mm. When you're in manual mode, sometimes you don't want that. So you can actually disable that behavior as well. So you can just rely only on the flappy paddles, which is, which is quite nice. Wow. So basically it, it turns off the safety shift. Yeah. Wow. I thought that was like baked in. You've still got a red line, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing you can do is you can flash it to a valet mode. So let's say you want to let a friend drive it. It limits the RPM to 3,000 RPM. <laughs> <laughs> or a kid, like, you know, kids learning to drive. Yeah, something like that, yeah. But I mean, for me, the access port, the, the beauty of this is, you know, I had an APR tune on that red GTI that you you rode with me in. Yeah. I remember. I had to go to a specific shop and then they would flash it uh, to, to do it. Whereas the access port, I can just pay my $175 to Equilibrium Tuning, download the flash, uh, the flash file and put it in the car straight away. So if I'm going to the mountains for a weekend, I can be like, right, party mode, let's put it on the full power, full race mode, like nonsense. And then when I'm going to be home for a couple of months, I can just put it into normal daily driver mode again. Oh, have you noticed a difference in your gas mileage? Well, I only did it this afternoon. So no. Okay, yeah, yeah. I wonder. I'll be curious to know if it's much. Uh, I've, been, I've been driving spiritedly since then, so the gas mileage has been um, poor. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll, there'll be a period of breaking in where the gas mileage is not reliable. One of the things that was really crazy, and I never did this, but one of the crazy things about the tool I used to flash the RV is they supported community tweaks to the flash so the community could alter and then they would republish their own like remixes which seems extremely dangerous to me but 
some people in the community were like known for really good remixes that were even better than the one that you know the maker of the flashing device provided. But I don't think I would ever. I don't. I'm not sure I'd <laughs> trust that for. A, so bear, bear in mind it it took the it took the little two liter turbo engine from two sixty two seventy to three seventy ish. It's unbelievable. It's um, it is unbelievable, and it's scary fast now. And so I did. I did a launch control in the car before I. So I, I did. I did it in a few stages. I did the. Um, I mean, I've had an R now for a long time. I know what it feels like on launch control stock. So I did the ECU flash first, and I went and drove around for an hour and did a couple of launches. And I was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" And then I came home and flashed the uh, Cobb tune, not the EQT DSG tune. Just the, okay. Just the makers of the access port. Uh, you have to install a file, download something so that the tuners can then tweak your tune based on the exact specific model of your transmission because apparently they're they're all slightly different based on the month they're made or something. And so I had to flash three files. The first one is just just the engine. The second one was the transmission with kind of like a middle ground. I went and drove around for an hour. I did a couple of launches. I had my uh, my dad's actually visiting at the moment. And uh, took him, you know, for a little spin around the lake near us. Oh, that's great! Oh, that's great! Did a launch control, and I was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" And then, by the time I got home, the tuners had provided me with a third and final file, which was the gearbox tune, the DSG tune, with their custom source in it, and they they modified like the shift points, they modified the clutch clamping pressure, a bunch of other parameters too. I flashed that, and I took Catherine out after kiddo had gone to bed yeah i span all four wheels <laughs> the car was torque steering i have uh, never uh, felt a golf r <laughs> feel so raw and amazing and it was honestly if you've ever been on rita queen of speed at alton towers in england oh boy i i can't wait to take you in it dude because i i cannot oh, believe how fast that car is on just software no hardware stuff at all. It's it's insane. It makes you really makes you realize just how much they are computers now, right? That all that I mean, the fact that you can tune the pops and the exhaust, and you can get this kind of horsepower, and you can reflash. Each thing has, I guess, its own computer too. It's and imagine what it's going to be like in ten more years. Yeah, now I'm just imagining what up, other upgrades I need to do to keep up with all that new power I'm making. I'm thinking I need to upgrade <laughs> the brakes yeah. a little bit, maybe maybe, maybe the tires, tires. <laughs> Yeah, and then I need yeah. to upgrade the intercooler, of course, because obviously it's generating more heat every time I do a launch. Yep. And yep. Oh, it begins. Yeah, it's it's a it's an endless rabbit hole of fun, but I love it. It's uh, worth every penny. <laughs>